Well, good morning, everybody. It's great to see you all. Um, for, so for those who don't know me, my name is Aaron. I'm a longtime member here at Refuge, uh, one of our community group leaders. Uh, I am very thankful to, to be uh, sharing from God's Word this morning with you all. And uh, so for those who've been here for a while, you know, we've been going through the book of Nehemiah and looking at this restoration project that is that is in this book that started with a wall and was but was really about the people. And uh, now we're getting into the home stretch of this just as we're also entering the Advent season. Uh, and so I'm really looking forward to seeing what God does in us and through us as we focus in on uh, the back half of uh, chapter nine this morning. Um, and so, uh, so as we get into this, what we're doing is, is we're going to be continuing to look at a prayer of praise and confession that is part of this great restoration project that, that is at work that God is doing in God's people in the book of Nehemiah. Uh, a couple of weeks ago, Dustin spoke on verses 1 through 15, which is really the praise portion, the the unadulterated praise portion of this prayer. And in that time together, we saw how um, the restoration of God's people is rooted in uh, good news and specifically in the grace of God, the character of God and the work of God and how that shapes how we relate to God and to the world around us. And this week, uh, we're moving from that unashamed praise into this this confession component of their prayer, which offers this really no-holds-bar contrast between God and his people as the people continue to experience this spiritual restoration for however long it may last. And as we look at these verses today, here's what I believe that the Lord wants us to focus on, that spiritual renewal comes when we embrace God's goodness for what it is. So let me say that again. Spiritual renewal comes when we embrace God's goodness for what it is. And so there's, uh, there's a th- three ways that we're going to see this play out in our text today. First, that God's goodness is not dependent or limited uh, by our faithfulness. Second, that God's goodness is present in his judgment. And third, that God's goodness leads us to depend on him. So let's pray, and then we're going to dig into the text. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you are good, that you're good in every way, and that as we, that as we, as we sang this morning, that uh, you, that Jesus is worthy of all worship and honor and glory and praise, um, and that we have the privilege here today to worship him fully with, our, with all that we are. God, I pray that you would help us to worship Jesus as we learn from your word this morning um, and that you would be glorified in what, uh, what, we, what we walk away with today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, so uh, starting in verse 16. But our ancestors acted arrogantly. They became stiff-necked and did not listen to your commands. They refused to listen and did not perform your wonders. 
your wonder, or did not remember your, your wonders you performed among them. They became stiff-necked and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. We're going to stop there for a second. Those first few words, but our ancestors acted arrogantly. And for, for those who are wondering, I'm reading from a, a different translation than we've got on the screen, but that's okay. Um, they acted presumptuously is how the ESV puts it. Um, this is the turning point in this, in this prayer, where it moves from that praise of God that I mentioned, this praise of his self-disclosure, his creation of the world, his covenant with Abraham, his rescuing of the people from their bondage in Egypt, and into the confession of the people's ongoing rebellion against him. That rather than responding with worship, they countered God's deeds with rejection. They refused to listen to him. They refused to obey him. They didn't remember the wonders he performed, even the ones that they had seen moments uh, before. Walking, parting the Red Sea, providing for all of their needs, all the things that happened. And then we get to the last half of verse 17, which says this. Despite their rejection, but you are a forgiving God gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in faithful or steadfast love, and you did not abandon them. See, even in the midst of this confession of the people's sins, the Levites who were, who were speaking this, they couldn't not point the people back to God. And in fact, the language here is actually a paraphrase of God's own self-disclosure from Exodus chapter 34, verses 6 and 7, which says this, that the Lord is a compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Now stop and think about those words for a second. The Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love. He is faithful to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. And this is exactly what we see him do in, as we continue through this passage, as we look at how he related to his people throughout history. We see that God's goodness is not dependent upon his people's faithfulness. And we see this in verses 18 forward, which say, Even after they had cast an image of a calf for themselves, they said, This is your God who brought you out of Egypt. And they had committed terrible blasphemies. You did not abandon them in the wilderness because of your great compassion. During the day of the pillar of cloud, or during the day, the pillar of cloud never turned away from them, guiding them on their journey. And during the night, the pillar of fire illuminated the way they should go. You sent your good spirit to instruct them. You did not withhold your manna from their mouths, and you gave them water for their thirst. You provided for them in the wilderness 40 years, and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out, and their feet did not swell. You gave them kingdoms and peoples and established boundaries for them. They took possession of the land of the king of 
King Sion of Heshbon and the land of King Og of Bashan. You multiplied their descendants like the stars of the sky and brought them to the land you told their ancestors to go in and possess. So their descendants went in and possessed the land. They sub- you subdued the Canaanites who inhabited the land before them and handed their kings and the surrounding peoples over to them to do as they pleased with them. They captured fortified cities and fertile land and took possession of well-supplied houses, cisterns cut out of rock and vineyard, olive groves and fruit trees in abundance. They ate and were filled, uh, became prosperous and delighted in your great goodness. That's what God did for these faithless people. And they really were faithless. They denied God at every opportunity. They were like the most ungrateful child who, after getting the the most glorious gift, says, well, what have you done for me lately? Before the Red Sea had, had been parted, they were sure that God had actually led them into the wilderness to be killed. While Moses was on Mount Sinai alone because they were afraid to be near God, they made an idol for themselves, one out of gold that God provided for them as they plundered Egypt on their way out into the wilderness. And they declared that this golden calf, this statue that they had just made, that this was the God that rescued them out of Egypt. And what did God do? Well, he could have destroyed them. He could have just killed them all and started over again, but he didn't. He didn't leave them to die in the desert. He didn't start over. He didn't destroy them. He was faithful to them even when they were faithless. He continued to lead them on the journey. He provided for their every need. They lacked nothing. Not even their clothing wore out the entire time that they were in the wilderness, 40 years through multiple generations. I have an almost 10-year-old boy. He wears through everything in about five minutes. 40 years. He gave them water to drink from stones. He gave them bread from the sky. He gave them kingdoms and fortified cities and vineyards and farms and every good thing that they could imagine. And they enjoyed it all because he gave it to them, even though they didn't deserve it. Even though they acted like they didn't want it most of the time. Or at least they didn't want the one who was giving it to them. God showed them extravagant grace, extraordinary kindness, lavish goodness. And the Levites were right to recognize this in their prayer. They were right to remind the people of the goodness of God to them, even when they rejected him. Now, some of us in this room right now, we struggle to believe that God is really that good, that he is good as we've seen in this text, that he is good as he says he is, that he is in fact slow to anger, that he is abounding in faithful or steadfast love, that he is willing to forgive iniquity and rebellion and sin. 
or at least that he's willing to forgive our iniquity, rebellion, and sin. We don't think that God is really that good or that if he is, that his goodness is somehow dependent on our faithfulness. And so we more often than not believe that God is sitting on his throne, that he's watching us, and he's just waiting. That every moment of every day, he has nothing but white hot rage in his eyes, and he's looking for an opportunity when he can finally just obliterate us and be done with it. Some of us, even when we can verbally assent to the facts of the gospel, that when we can say with our mouths that Jesus Christ came into the world, lived perfectly for us, died in our place for our sins, and rose again, we can say all that, and yet we don't believe it in our hearts. Not, not truly. Not fully. We think that even though God saved us, that God hates us. And friends, you need to know right now, especially if you're sitting here thinking this at this moment, that's just not true. God genuinely, truly loves you. God genuinely, truly loves you. Just as he genuinely, truly loved these messed up, rebellious people that rejected him in the wilderness. Just as he loved the messed up, rebellious people of Nehemiah's day. Just as he loved the genuinely messed up, rebellious people who became the apostles. That, and just as he genuinely and truly loved every messed up, rebellious generation throughout the centuries to bring the gospel to all nations. God truly, genuinely loves you, and his goodness is not dependent on your faithfulness. If you are a follower of Jesus, if you believe that Jesus lived, died, and rose again for you, you need to know that right now. God loves you. And if you are not a follower of Jesus, if you don't know what you believe about Jesus, you need to know right now that God loves you. And the greatest way that he has shown that to you is that Jesus lived, died, and rose again for you. And he wants all of us to delight in his goodness because he holds nothing back from those he loves in Jesus. And all he asks is that if you in, is that you enjoy all that he has to offer because of Jesus, to enjoy him through Jesus because that's what he offers us. And so in a little while we're going to be taking communion. And so as we when we do spend some time and consider this question do I really believe that God is as good as he says he is? And if so, praise God for that. And when you come to the table, come with a thankful heart and enjoy that. But if not, ask the question, why? Why is that? What is, what is standing in your way? What is blocking 
you from, from believing that God truly is as good as he says he is, that his goodness is not dependent on your faithfulness. Pray about that and come and talk to someone here, to whomever you're comfortable talking to, whether it's me, whether it's one of the elders, whether if you're in one of our community groups and your community group leaders here, anyone, we want, we want to help you. We want to pray with you. We want to talk through this. But this is the truth that you need to know today, friends, that God's goodness is not dependent on your faithfulness. God is good because he is God. And that is good news for us. And just as it's good news that God's goodness is not dependent on our faithfulness, God's goodness is also present in his judgment. Now, that sounds strange to say that it's good news that his goodness is dependent in or is present in judgment, but it's true. Because too often we think the opposite is true, that judgment is somehow the absence of God's goodness. But that's not what scripture shows us. Rather than being the absence of his goodness, there's, there's a sense in which his judgment is actually a sign of it. Again, think back again to those words from Exodus 34, the, that description of the Lord, that he is compassionate and, and gracious, that he's slow to anger and abounding in faithful love and truth, maintaining faithful love to a thousand generations, forgiving iniquity, rebellion, and sin. Well, that description doesn't end there because it goes on in verse 7 to say this, but he will not leave the guilty unpunished, bringing the consequences of the father's iniquity on the children and grandchildren to the third and fourth generation. And so Nehemiah chapter 9 makes this same connection in this prayer as the Levites recognize God's goodness in his judgment of their rebellious ancestors. And we see this in verses 26 through 31, which say this, But they were disobedient and rebelled against you. They flung your law behind their backs and killed your prophets who warned them in order to turn them back to you. They committed terrible blasphemies, so you handed them over to their enemies who oppressed them. In their time of distress, they cried out to you, and you heard from heaven. In your abundant compassion, you gave them deliverers who rescued them from the power of their enemies. But as soon as they had relief, they again did what was evil in your sight. So you abandoned them to the power of their enemies who dominated them. And when they cried out to you again, you heard from heaven and you rescued them many times in your compassion. You warned them to turn back to your law, but they acted arrogantly and would not obey your commands. They sinned against your ordinances, which a, a person will live by if he does them. They stubbornly resisted, stiffened their necks, and would not obey. You were patient with them for many years, and your spirit warned them through your prophets, but they would not listen. Therefore, you handed them over to the surrounding peoples. However, in your abundant compassion, you did not destroy them or abandon them, for you are a gracious and compassionate God. So verse 26 starts this section that gives us this incredible picture of how the people just outright disregarded God's, God's commands and God himself. And understand, they weren't simply ignoring or disregarding his, his words, his, his commands. 
they were basically doing the equivalent of taking a piece of paper, crumpling it up, and throwing it, throwing it in the trash. They were saying that his, that his commands for them were worthless. And when God pursued them, sending prophets to call them to repentance, prophets who would say things like Ezekiel did in 33.11, I take no pleasure in the death of the wicked, but rather that the wicked should turn from his way and live. Repent of your evil ways. Why will you die, house of Israel? And do you know what they did? They killed them. That's how far gone the Israelites were. That's how lost to their own sin they had become. That's how deeply they had abandoned any pretense of loving and following the Lord. God would have been right to destroy them all. God would have been right to send them into captivity and leave them there. But he didn't. Instead, he was right and good in disciplining them. Now, discipline is a difficult subject because when we hear that word, we often think punishment. And so when we, so we become afraid when we see anything about God disciplining people. And there's a degree to which, yes, we should be, we, we should be afraid of that because it's not fun. <laughs> um, it's not a good thing um, if we have done something that requires us to be disciplined. But what do we do in our fear? We take it upon ourselves to do more better, to try more harder, and to, or at least to look at every bad thing that happens in our lives as being some kind of punishment for him if we're not trying to be, trying to white-knuckle our way to holiness. But that's not what God does, and it's not what discipline is for. Uh, author Jerry Bridges described the purpose of discipline this way, that the purpose of God's discipline is not to punish us, but to transform us. And that's what we have, that's what we have to see in this passage. Because we often talk about God as our Father, um, and something that the Bible encourages, in fact, and in this, God is being a very good father indeed. Because what father doesn't discipline his children? What father doesn't discipline the ones he loves? The Israelites would reject him and his commands. They would deny him. And what would he do? He would warn them. He would discipline them. And then finally, he gave them what they wanted. They experienced the consequences of their decisions, consequences that he warned about long before they ever happened. And the purpose of this wasn't simply to punish them. It was to discipline them. It was to transform them. It was to help them to turn back to his ways. And in this, his discipline is this amazing act of compassion. It is an act of his goodness, a sign of it, because his judgment is a demonstration of his goodness. And so for us today, we need to consider our relationship not only with God's commands, but our understanding of his goodness, and our understanding of his goodness, but also our understanding of his judgment. When we read the Bible, how do we respond to God's commands and to the demonstrations of his judgment? Do we see them for the good and righteous actions that they are? And in our own lives, how do we respond when we experience discipline from the Lord in one of its many different forms? 
How often are we tempted to run from him instead of to him in those moments? How often are we prone to see discipline as a sign of his displeasure than evidence of his love for us? That he cares enough about us to say, no, not that way. Because truly, that's what's happening when he disciplines us. His goodness is present there. His goodness is displayed in it and through it. And he is using it to make us more like Jesus. As Hebrews 12, 11 says, No discipline seems enjoyable at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. So in your community groups this week, a good, dis- a good question to discuss is how you've seen the discipline you've experienced bring about these positive changes in your character? How have you seen God's discipline bring about the fruit of righteousness in your life? How have your experiences made you a little bit more like Jesus? And these are difficult questions to be able to answer on your own. So uh, if you actually can't answer them, maybe someone else can. Someone who's close enough to be able to see the work that God is doing in those moments. And the good news is, is that if you're a Christian, he is at work in your life. He is working in and through you right now and every day to make you more like Jesus. And he is going to keep doing that every day until the day you stand before him. And he's going to do it through positive encouragement and instruction. And he's going to do it by allowing us to experience the consequences of our decisions. That's how good he is. His goodness is so good that it's present even in his judgment. And that goodness that is not limited by our faithfulness, that's present in his judgment, that goodness leads us to depend on him. Him, which is our, our, our third point. And so listen to verses 32 through 37. So now, our God, the great, mighty, and awe-inspiring God who keeps his gracious covenant, do not view lightly all the hardships that have afflicted us, our kings and leaders, our priests and prophets, our ancestors and all your people from the days of the Assyrian kings, Until today, you are righteous concerning all that has happened to us because you have acted faithfully while we have acted wickedly. Our kings, leaders, priests, and ancestors did not obey your law or listen to your commands and warnings that you gave them. And when they were in their kingdom with your abundant goodness that you gave them, And in the spacious and fertile land that you set before them, they would not serve you or turn from their wicked ways. And here we are today, slaves in the land that you gave our ancestors so that they could enjoy its fruit and its goodness. Here we are, slaves in it. Its abundant harvest goes to the kings you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and our livestock as they please. We are in great distress. So in these final verses, the Levites show that they understood what was really going on. They understood that all the people's hardship was the result, ultimately, of their collective rejection and rebellion uh, against God. 
They knew that God had acted faithfully, even when they had acted wickedly. They knew that their captivity in Assyria and later Babylon and and under the Persian Empire was the just consequence of their refusal to serve God and to turn from their wicked ways. They knew that God was right and just in his actions. They recognized that they were experiencing the consequences of their choices, and they recognized that they were not free people, free to rule themselves, but were under the rule of other nations. They returned to the promised land after 70 years under Babylonian captivity, but it was not truly theirs. They were still under the authority of others. The land's harvest went to the people who ruled them, those same kings and rulers who had the right to do whatever they pleased with the people and their possessions. The people had been humbled, chastened by their experience of God's judgment, their realization of the inexhaustibility of God's grace. And so it led them to the only one to whom they could turn, God himself. The same God that they had rejected time and again. The same God who had shown them time and again that he was and is a forgiving God, gracious and compassionate, slow to anger and abounding in faithful love, who provided for their every need, who pursued them in his faithful love and would continue to do so until the, uh, to the very ends of the earth until the end of time. The God who would never abandon his people, not because they were faithful or because they were so good, but because he is so good, because he's abounding in steadfast or faithful love. And what they were asking in this moment is this, God, will you continue your plan? Will you fulfill your promises? Will you fulfill the promise you made to Abraham all those centuries ago to make him, uh, from him a great nation, descendants so numerous that they could not be counted, and from them to bring one who would bless all the people of the world? And here's the good news. We know, the, we know the answer to this. We know from the rest of the story that the answer to their petition was a resounding yes. God, in his goodness, was faithful and is faithful to fulfill the promise that he made so long ago to make a nation from, from Abraham, to bring about one through whom all the nations would be blessed although he wouldn't do it in the way that they would expect. Because the people were expecting that the time would come when Israel would regain its former glory of the kind that it enjoyed during the reigns of David and Solomon. They wanted to be a great nation state again. But God, in his goodness, had a better plan. The Jews would spend years, generations, under the rules of others in some way, shape, or form. The Babylonians were conquered by the Persians. The Persians were then conquered by the Greek Empire. The Greek Empire eventually gave way to the Roman Empire. Over over a period of 400 years, this went on. 
And through it all, the people waited for the day when God would act and their king would come. And then, at just the right time, God did exactly that when he sent his son, Jesus, into the world. Not as a great and powerful king. Not as a mighty conqueror in the traditional sense, but as a baby, as the son of a poor couple from an obscure and undesirable, uninfluential town. And when Jesus became a man, he didn't claim an earthly throne. Instead, he had taken the form of a servant and he served his people, humbling himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. And the best news of all is that he is not dead. Jesus is alive right now, continuing to bring blessing to the world as he draws more people to himself to recognize their helplessness apart from him, to embrace God's goodness for what it is, a goodness that's not dependent upon our faithfulness that's present in his judgment and drives us to depend on him, to be more like him every day and to fulfill the mission that he's called us to, to be disciples who are making disciples wherever he has placed us. That is the goodness that we do truly need to embrace. That's the goodness that he gives us Uh, that gives us good news to tell. And that's the good news that many Christians are celebrating in a very special way during the Advent season uh, that starts actually today. So let me ask you this. Where do you need your sense of God's goodness renewed? Where do you need to embrace it for what it is, perhaps even for the first time? Wherever that is, let's go before him, knowing that we can depend on him, the great, mighty, and awe-inspiring God, to be faithful to us right now, in this moment, and in all the days to come. Let's pray. Father, thank you that we get to call you Father. Thank you that you are a good Father in the ways that we talk about, the ways that we sing about, the ways that we struggle to believe. God, thank you for how you have shown your goodness again and again and again to your people that is not dependent on us and our faithfulness, that you are faithful to us even when we are faithless. God, help us to embrace your goodness for what it is, to turn to you in every moment, and to be transformed by you in your goodness to further this good news that you have given us to share with all the world. In Jesus' name.